to welcome those joining us online. My name is Edgar. I've been a member here for a couple of years and I'm a part-time seminary student under the guidance of Pastor Mike Shera and several of the pastors on staff. Here at Grace, we are a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. We love the truth and we want to live it. If you're new to Grace, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. We would love the opportunity to meet you, and we have a gift for you located just right outside on the plaza at the Welcome Center. Please stand for our call to worship, as we will be reading Psalm 27, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 27, verses 4 and 5. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Lord, may you grant us a glimpse of your beautiful glory this morning. For we, like David, long for the day in, when, in which we get to stand before you and marvel at your magnificent form. Amen. Join us this morning as we sing. There's one reason. There's one reason why we're gathered here. Your love is causing us to sing. All of your people through your son draw Sinners before
please remain standing in honor of God and his word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. Our prayer focus this morning is Ed and Carla Trenner. They serve here locally and direct on-mission partners who helps train and support missionaries. Let's pray. Lord, who above in the heavens or on the earth below is like you? For you have cast your spirit over the face of the waters, and you have caught us in the net of your word, bringing us into your hand. Lord, you are our God, the divine fisher of men. Lord, we ask that you would look upon us with mercy as we are a people who become proud, harsh, and impatient, even at times unwilling to love one another. So teach us, Lord, how to be one, even as you are one. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Like Moses, in whom you hid from Pharaoh's wrath, in a basket on the riverbank. So you have hidden us from your fierce anger in the ark of your son. Thank you for punishing him rather than us. Thank you for exalting him high above every name. Lord, many of your people here this morning are worn down, worried, some afraid, and others broken. May you look to those who have no strength, and may you reveal to us again how your perfect power rests most clearly upon us in our weakness. See the needs of your people, O God, and provide to them what they ask you in faith. Lord, we lift up Ed and Carla Trenner. Thank you, first and foremost, for your faithfulness to them. Thank you for their example of living a life worthy of your call. This church and so many parts of the world have been blessed because of their hard labor in you. So we ask that you may continue to fill them with your grace and fervent zeal, that they may reach the perishing with your glorious gospel. Amen. 
Travel. 
as your children to come into your presence to meet our creator, our maker, our savior. Lord, we thank you that this is possible because of what Christ has done. Lord, we thank you and we desire to give glory to you here, um, Lord, in the way that we receive the word, in the way that we sing the word, in the way that we live it out one to another. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A pastor friend of mine in Africa once told me, actually just last year, uh, that American Christians will fight over just about anything. And it's truer than we want to admit. And many Christians get riled up over the Holy Spirit. Uh, misunderstanding the Spirit's identity and work uh, generates a lot of confusion and a lot of contention. Uh, people will insist things about the Spirit. They'll say, uh, the Spirit of God told me to do something. Uh, the Spirit nudged me. The Spirit, uh, you know, did this or that or the other. And some, some churches will even say, you know, to prove you're a Christian, you must have a certain manifestation of the Spirit. And on and on it goes. But the Holy Spirit doesn't create fights or confusion or division. Uh, yet many divide over what unites us. The reason for unity is tied to the idea that we saw in Ephesians 4 that was just read a few moments ago that God brought about the oneness of the church and there is one body and one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And Ephesians is, is what, what Ephesians 4 is doing is giving the reasons why we should, in all humility, with patience, gentleness, forbear with one another in love, and diligently keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is the constant plea, really, the uh, constant exhortation and focus for believers. Like Christian, you need to live the unity that you've been given. And don't base it on your feelings. Don't force ideas into the Bible. Don't drift away from Scripture. Don't spoil or poison the unity. And we have seen, you know, in the book of Ephesians, so many glorious truths. In the first three chapters, we see the glorious grace of Christ in saving, uh, electing, predestining, adopting, sealing, giving an inheritance, making the dead to live, putting them into his church. And then you get to chapter 4. And chapter 4, 5, and 6, just based upon those glorious truths of the grace of God in the first three chapters, and the church is being instructed how to live in Christ. And right off the bat, they're being told, we're being told, be diligent to, present the unity, uh, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The idea would be that to acknowledge we are united and we should always be pursuing unity as Christ's body. That we ought not to corrupt spirit-given oneness, though often our sin will do just that. And so the verses we're looking at, and we're going to really look at one phrase in verse 4, but in verses 4, 5, and 6, it's about the unity of the body. It's about oneness of Christ's church. Verse 4, one body, uh, one spirit, one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father. Uh, the, the word one is used seven times in three verses. 
What establishes the principle of the essential unity of the church. And it shows how important unity is. How essential it is. It's why we are called to pursue it so intently. And we've already seen this, that every believer is in the one body. When we looked at that, we asked three questions like, are you in that body? Uh, Do you love that body? And are you helping or hindering it? But today what we will see is that believers must live unified in Christ because the one spirit lives in the one body. The one spirit lives in the body, resides in the body, dwells in the body, empowers the body, literally enlivens the body, strengthens the body. And what I want to do today is show you from the book of Ephesians what it says about the Spirit of God. Who He is, what He does, and how we are to respond. Now there are distinct references to the Holy Spirit in the letter to the Ephesians. We're going to look at each one, and hopefully it will give you an accurate view of the Spirit of God and and even correct any inaccurate views. Uh, you to know uh, the real thing, uh, you know, is is a is a big thing. And if you want to spot a counterfeit, you need to know the real thing well. Now you may experience some discomfort listening to this sermon. Uh, you know, like you go to the doctor and the doctor says this might be a little uncomfortable. Um, if you have received some incorrect teaching on the Holy Spirit, or if you've mishandled the word yourself regarding the Holy Spirit. Or if you have an idea or a pattern or a way of relating to God that you practice and insist upon that isn't true and isn't accurate and isn't appropriate, something that God didn't design or invent or bless, you might experience a little discomfort in this sermon. And actually, Wednesday night um, at the uh, midweek service, uh, the word on Wednesday, I'm going to be preaching another sermon on this. Literally, it's already ready. I literally have prepared two sermons this week. So if you don't usually come on Wednesday nights, come Wednesday night because um, the more unfiltered uh, things will be said Wednesday night. Um, so that's just the way it goes. Different things, of course, but following along in this idea, we're going to look at illumination and revelation and, and what the Holy Spirit does. But what the Bible actually says about the Holy Spirit maybe isn't as fizzy and exciting as signs and wonders. But what you need to know is it glorifies Christ. You know, I could preach a hundred sermons on the Holy Spirit, and someone would come up and say at the end, yes, but. Every time I have preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit, I've had people march themselves up, and by the way, open door, ask any question, let's, let's dialogue. But every time I preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit, someone will walk up and say, yes, but... That's not the way I think. That's not the way I understand it. That's not the way I was taught it. Well, I want us all to have our minds renewed and transformed by the word of God rightly handled. Some people take issue that the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned more in the Bible. They take an issue with God, by the way. Uh, They say, well, it's it's not mentioned as, as much as the Father and the Son. So, by the way, if you preach the whole counsel of God, you may not mention, you probably will not mention the Spirit as much as you mention the Father and the Son. 
It's the way God designed it. It doesn't make the Spirit less important. And let me remind you, the Spirit of God breathed every word out, spoke every word of Scripture. The Holy Spirit spoke and inspired the Word of God, and the triune God in His infinite glory ordered it this way. First, what I want us to do is clarify the identity of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to talk about the Spirit of God, let's, let's make sure we know who we're talking about. Now, in those days, unbelievers, just like today, believed in many spirits. And they would you know, say, well, those are helpful ones, those are harmful ones. And Paul is not denying the reality of the spirit world. What he is saying is this. There is one true spirit from God who joins believers to the one body of Christ and indwells that body. And that for the believer, the only spirit you need to be worried about, the only spirit that you should be concerned about, is the one spirit. You are protected, you are empowered by the one spirit of God. So to clarify the identity of the Holy Spirit, let's do a quick primer on the Trinity. By the way, some of you might think I speak too fast usually. Today will be warp speed then, okay? There is one God. The one being is the triune God. Three distinct divine beings in one being. Person, excuse me. Three distinct divine persons in one being. Not three beings, one being, three divine persons. They are co-equal. Each fully shares the one being of God. They are co-eternal. They existed in relationship outside of time. God is one being. God is three persons. Each are fully God. Each is distinct from the others. They are eternally related as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like the way Michael Reeves put it. If you would just start from scratch and see who the triune God is according to the Bible, you'd be on better footing. But if you envision, by the way, God according to your assumptions, your mind is going to rebel at the thought of a God who is not as you would expect. So the Holy Spirit is God, a person, not a force or a power that you grab hold of to use how you want. Well, let's look at what the one Spirit does. There, will, there are seven functions that we see in Ephesians. And then we'll see how we are to respond. And there are five responses. Now, this is not exhaustive, but it sure is a good place to start. So, the first thing you want to see about the Spirit of God, you see it in chapter 1 and verse 3, is that the Spirit of God blesses with salvation. Blesses the believer with salvation. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You'll notice this is the Trinitarian verse. You've got the Father, you've got Jesus, and it says with every spiritual blessing, literally blessing of the Spirit, blessing that comes in the realm of the Spirit of God, in the sphere of the blessings given by the Holy Spirit. These are speaking of blessings the Spirit gives. And you'll say, well, what blessings are those? Well, chapter 1 outlines them all. Election, predestination, adoption, regeneration, inheritance, all of those and more. And, and even as Jesus put it, the Spirit gives life. If you're a Christian today, it's because the Holy Spirit 
caused you to be born again. That uh, Jesus says you're born of the Spirit. That, that James says that you are born through the living and abiding Word of God that has been inspired by the Spirit. If you're a Christian today, it means the Spirit of God convicted you of your sins and of righteousness and judgment. They let you know you were hopeless without Christ and the Word told the truth about you. And you know you suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and you were under God's wrath and you were under a sentence of death. And unless and until the Spirit of God awakened your conscience and turned your heart to believe in Jesus, you'd be totally lost. If you're a Christian today, you know that. And when you come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, your guilt is gone. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have fellowship with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Salvation is Trinitarian. The Father sent the Son. The Son secured salvation. The Spirit works it out. That's why you don't need to get the Spirit at some subsequent time after coming to faith in Christ. You cannot come to faith in Christ apart from the Spirit of God. And for the Christian, Christ lives in you. The Father and Son dwell in you. And the Spirit dwells in you. I like how Puritan John Flavel put it. We preach and pray, and you hear the word, but there is no motion Christ-word until the Spirit of God begins to work. And you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't be saved and profess Christ as Lord unless the Spirit gives you life. Saving faith is the result, not the cause, of regeneration. The biblical order of salvation is not uh, believing causes you to be born again, but whoever God causes to be born again believes. That's the scriptural order of it, that the Spirit of the living God acts on your spiritually dead soul and causes you to be alive, and your response is due to God's gift of faith that has been granted. And then you love Jesus, who first loved you, and you desire to pray and to, to worship God and to pray and to read the Word and have fellowship with believers and serve God. And so the first thing we see the Spirit does is blesses with salvation, blesses the believer with salvation. The second thing we see is still in chapter 1 and verse 13. The Spirit seals the believer. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed indicates ownership. And it also guarantees the purity of the content of what's inside what was sealed. Now, we seal things all the time, don't we? We put things in Ziplocs and throw them in freezers and what have you. Might seal a leak in a bike tube so that you can, you know, ride your bike. That's not the idea here. This is more like a wax seal on a message from a king. We put a stamp of authenticity on something you mark the thing that is sealed it's like when you when you write your name on what you own 
sealed, when you are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, the image of God gets restored in you. That, that the seal is put on you to confirm the promise of God, the irrevocable promise of God. It confirms the testimony that he has saved you. And it gets very personal. This is personal. You're sealed, to be sealed by the Spirit of God is to have the Spirit of God as evidence in your soul that you have been accepted by God, that God possesses you, that he secures you, that you are his. He assures you that you are his. So the Spirit assures you, seals you, of the faithfulness of God who made the promise. That the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You are sealed. You're marked as God's purchased possession. You're kept safe for the day of redemption. And, and you're secure whether you, you feel it or not. You're safe in Christ's hands. His grip never lets go. The Holy Spirit restores the image of God in you, brings you into fellowship with himself, gives you boldness and fellowship, and you're set apart for God. And think of all the things in life that make you insecure, make you feel a certain way. But the Spirit of God fully secures you, set free to serve God with a whole heart. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, which should just encourage the believer's heart, should bolster your confidence in serving God today. You receive the Spirit of God through faith, the promised Spirit through faith in Christ. The Spirit blesses and the Spirit seals or secures you. Third, the Spirit gives wisdom. Still in chapter 1, now at verse 17, this is a prayer. This is in the middle of a prayer that Paul is praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That God, the Spirit, would, would, would give you the wisdom you need. That he would reveal the wisdom. That he would unveil the wisdom that he wants you to perceive and discern and recognize. The very next verse says that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. To illuminate, to give light, to shed light. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's heart and life is continually illuminating spiritual truths to you, a continual process. But here's the thing. People will hear that and literally think they don't need to use their Bibles. That God's going to you know, download info. It's like if you go into a test without studying and you're like, I'm a Christian. God's just going to give me the answers to the math test. <laughs> no, he's not. You're going to fail the test. So the idea is it's not the work of the Holy Spirit to tell you the meaning of Scripture apart from Scripture. You must labor in the Word. You, you, the, the Spirit will bless your study of the Word and give you knowledge through it. If you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know the Bible. My guess is you're not opening the Bible. And by the way, if you reject the study of the Scriptures by saying, well, the Spirit's just going to tell me, that means you're lazy. That means you've rejected what the Scriptures say about it. Think about it. If you're you want to get some gold? You want to mine for gold? You think you're going to like stand at the entrance of the mine and it's just going to like get thrown out to you? No, you've got to dig for the gold. You've got to mine it. 
What did Paul tell the Corinthians? He said, we impart wisdom. Not a wisdom of this world or this age that is doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's not that you're getting secrets. You know, Reuben, you're going to get secrets? All to, God's just going to give Reuben the secret. Sorry, Reuben. You're just a friendly face. Reuben's just going to get secrets from God. Nobody else is going to get. That's not what this is talking about. No, we impart a wisdom that was secret and hidden that God decreed before the ages for our glory and none of the rulers of this age understood and if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, now here's a quote. It's a quote from the Old Testament but, and people think it's about heaven. It's not about heaven. It says, what no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's not about heaven. Heaven's going to be wonderful. This is about the word of God. About the word, not heaven. In fact, it goes on to say, things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And that we have, it goes on to say, we have the mind of Christ. That you would understand the things freely given to you by God. That you would understand the word of God. It's, It's right there in the context. That you would grasp what God says and means and have your life shaped by that truth. It's wonderful. Psalm 19 says the word is perfect and sure and right and pure and it converts the soul, it enlightens the eyes and makes you wise. So you're not going to be guessing right answers to things that you've never seen or heard before. And Spirit will use the word of God in you to give you understanding to act and to live wisely to please God. The Spirit blesses with salvation, seals, secures the believer, and gives wisdom. Fourth, the Spirit gives access. We have access to God by the Spirit. Now look at chapter 2 and verse 18. Chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Through Him, basically through Christ, we both have, Jew and Gentile, both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Access, entrance, you know, key code. Got keys and, and codes to get into things. This is idea of you, you are able to solemnly approach God. It's like approaching a king. Access to the king's presence. And you note the Trinitarian language through Christ. We have access in one spirit to the Father. And, and it's, this is why you can pray. Prayer is a conversation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Prayer is a conversation with the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That the ongoing benefit of Christ reconciling you to himself is that you have access and that what's what's prayed in Ephesians 3.12 is that you now are able to come boldly. You can come boldly to God, not not haphazardly, not flippantly, boldly because of what Christ has done. And now this is speaking of Jew and Gentile alike living out their new position in Christ in new community with the one spirit of God. This is why you can pray. This is why as the writer of Hebrews says you can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're not cowering in fear in some corner or, you know, or afraid of a bully no, you're, you're rightly respectful in awe before the king of the universe. 
You were once his enemy. He's made you his friend. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He commands you to believe, to obey. The Spirit of God does these things, blesses with salvation, seals and secures the believer, gives you wisdom, gives you access to God. And fifth, the Holy Spirit builds up the body, the one body. Still in chapter 2, but verse 22 In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Literally, in the Spirit. Built into a dwelling together with others. is The place of God's abode, his dwelling, the place that he settles down. God makes his home in his church. And the Holy Spirit grows that church. It says that you are being built together. It's the present tense because the building is still going on. It isn't complete yet. You might be an unbeliever today and come to faith in Christ and you are put into the body, the one body, by the one spirit. We are together a holy temple, a holy house, a dwelling place of God that is set apart for his use. Just like you would build with stone or steel or cement or wood, Piece by piece, God is building his spiritual house person by person, by grace through faith, as he intends, as the Spirit of God brings it about in Christ. The Spirit blesses, seals, gives wisdom, gives access to God, builds the body. And six, the Spirit reveals truth. Reveals truth through the Word of God. You'll notice that this is just continually pointing to the Jesus and the Word. Christ and Scripture. Now go into chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. It's, It's not hidden anymore. It's now been revealed. How? To his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, chapter 2, verse 20 has already told us that God uh, founded the church on the apostles and prophets, built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That means by the word of God, as the spirit of God uses it. That's why there's no apostles and prophets anymore. You don't keep rebuilding the foundation. And here it says that by, he has revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit, the spirit given word. He has revealed truth. That what was unclear or even hidden under the Old Testament economy has been clarified. You know when you, when you walk into a dark room and the lights up, just appear because it has some sensor or what have you? Well, when Christ appeared, the spiritual lights went on. That, that, and here's what was being said, and this is what he's explaining, uh, that Gentiles don't have to become Jews when they come to faith in Christ that Gentiles and Jews have equal access to God and, and that the closeness you have now with God is a result of the new covenant in, in Christ's blood. These are things to be known. These are things to be celebrated by the believer as the Spirit makes them known. Wednesday night, I'm going to be talking about revelation, inspiration, illumination. That really gets a lot jumbled up in people's minds, thinking that God's giving new revelation today, when actually the canon of Scripture is closed, and he has inspired the Word, he spoke the Word, and what does he do now in the life of a believer? He illumines the Word. He gives you understanding of the Word. This is why the psalmist prayed, Open my eyes, that I would see wonderful things in your Word. 
that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's like a, a light in a dark place, lighting the way, revealing what can't be seen. It's like fog lights and more spotlight. When Jesus said, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free, free to serve me. God's word is truth. It transforms, and the Spirit uses it. The Spirit blesses with new life and seals and gives wisdom and access to God and builds the body and reveals truth. And seventh, he empowers the body. Still in chapter 3, but now verse 16. He's praying. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Strengthened with strength. Empowered with strength. Through his spirit in your inner being. You see, this is not you just, you know, trying to be Fred Flintstone and, and making everything work on your own, right? This is according to the riches of his glory. He would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that you would be empowered, that you would literally be infused with strength by God. You'd be fortified, you'd be braced, invigorated by the spirit of God as Christ dwells in your heart by faith that you are rooted and grounded in love and that you are able to understand and know Christ's love and have strength. What's the strength for? Is the strength for for you to go and just get everything you want in life? You know, name it and claim it and do all that you want? No, it's strength to have a humble and, and, uh, and, um, and cautious approach to God, to have a humble gratitude for what God has given. God gives good gifts. The Spirit guides us in understanding what we have in Christ. You get power. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Paul told the Romans that the Spirit gives life to your mortal bodies. Several weeks ago, we talked about the strength you need, and where does it come from? Well, the strength you need in Christ comes from God the Spirit, not the flesh comes through the word of God, not your mind, and comes in Christ's church, not alone. These are the things that the Spirit of God does, these, these functions, if you will, that the Spirit blesses with salvation, seals the Christian, gives you wisdom, gives you access to God, builds the body, reveals truth, and empowers you to live. And you're to respond. And, and it's, it's, it's great because chapters 1, 2, and 3 tell us what God did, and Primarily, chapters 4, 5, and 6 gives our response to what God did. And so how does the one body respond? Well, there's five responses we see in Ephesians. And the first is this. Do not grieve the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit. It's a strong warning. It's a command. Now, it's in chapter 4, verse 30. So near the end of chapter 4. If you look at that in your Bible, put your eyes on that verse. It says this. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, there's that word again, that you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you're, you're securing Christ, but don't use that as a cover for just sinning without repentance. Saying don't grieve the Spirit of God. And it's in the context of not lying to one another and not speaking rotten words and not being bitter or angry and all of that. To grieve means to cause sorrow. We all know what grief is. This is spoken in such a way where it's basically saying, stop doing it. 
It's to stop a habitual action. It's basically telling believers, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Wow. The Spirit who enables you to understand the truth isn't pleased when you don't walk in the truth. He's put to shame when you lie to one another or utter foul, rotten words. What did Jesus say? We'll give an account on the final day for every careless word that we spoke. Augustine hung a sign on his dining room wall. And it said this. Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. Instead of negative things, what could you say that would bless someone? I mean, if God has set his seal on you, why live as if you were dead? Why bring shame on his body? We have the Spirit. You, you know you struggle with sin, believer. And you're convicted of your sin and you confess and repent. Unless you resist the Holy Spirit. Unless you say, no, I'm not going to repent. You're going to be, if you do that, you're going to be miserable and you're going to make other people miserable and you're going to be the most miserable person to be around. Unless and until you confess your sin and repent. Because you're in a war with sin, believer. You're in a war with sin that is raging against your soul. The, the, the sin wages war against the soul. But there are people who profess to be believers who have made peace with sin. Who sit quite comfortably in the easy chair of sin. Who have settled in quite comfortably. Don't let that be you. Because that's not the Christian life at all. It's not the Christian life at all. That's trampling on the Son of God and exposing him to open shame. You may, if you keep doing that, be found to be without God. That Jesus may say on that day, I never knew you. If you're born again, your behavior is going to show the new birth. If you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you'll have new desires. You'll have a new outlook. You're not going to be perfect, but you will be repentant. And you'll no longer see the world as, as revolving around you. You'll, you'll, you'll become Christ-centered and others-oriented. You know, those who live by the flesh set their, their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live by the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, the things that please God, the things... In the word, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You know, in 1 John 4, 4, it says that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You check the context, what's it talking about? It says, he that is in you, the Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. I was talking to a, a good friend of mine last week a pastor that's been going through some tough times, and he kept saying, well, Satan's having a field day. Satan's having a field day. And he just kept repeating it over and over again. And too many, too many times, it made me uncomfortable. And I'm like, is the Spirit of God at work? Is the Spirit of God at work? And you know what was interesting in that moment as we kept talking? He was pouring out some, some tough stuff. He, kept, he started using different words. You know, Satan is, 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 has schemes but the Spirit of God is greater. And I think having that momentary, even that midterm correction, 
even in a conversation, is necessary for us where we kind of start to think differently. And it's like, it, it really doesn't do us a lot of good to say we know Christ if we, if we don't give him credit for what he is doing and that we won't repent of our sin. Um, what we need to do, what you need to do, what I need to do is cultivate a habit. We all have habits. And some of you are really good at cultivating good habits and some of you have cultivated some bad ones. But you need to cultivate a habit of owning your choices. Like, own your choices. You, you did and said what you did and said. You had the attitude you had. Own it. You know, learn from it. Confess. Ask forgiveness. But just don't give excuses and don't give justifications. Because we're commanded, do not grieve the Spirit by being unrepentant. And secondly, we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Here's where people go way off base on but in Ephesians 5.18, if you look in chapter 5, verse 18, I remember my first day of seminary, first week or whatever it was, and Dr. Jim Roskup, James Roskup, was my, one of my Bible exposition professors, and he said, okay, everybody open up their Bibles and go to Ephesians 5.18, and then break up into groups of two or three and make as many observations on this verse as you can. He was trying to teach us the first step of diving into the word is reading it and then make observations of what's actually saying. And I remember thinking to myself, well, he'll give us a minute or two because there's only probably one or two things there. As it turns out, my group came up with 40 observations. Uh, it, was, we, it was a gold mine of, of observation. What does this verse say? So Ephesians 5.18 says this, do not get drunk with wine, that's a command, for that is debauchery or basically excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command as well. There's two commands in this verse. And the, the second command is the one being focused on. So don't get drunk with wine. That's, that's excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, lives in us, right? You've, you've received the baptism of the Spirit. By the way, there's churches that teach that once you come to faith in Christ, you're going to need subsequent to that to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What they they twist the scriptures because you, again, I've said it before, but you cannot have Jesus without the Holy Spirit in the mix. You, it cannot happen. You have the Holy Spirit immediately and permanently at the moment of conversion. He comes to live in you. That's why you have union with Christ. You can't have union with Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. So you already have the Holy Spirit. If you're a new believer, you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from the moment that you surrendered to Christ, the moment that, that you got saved, that the Spirit did a work in your heart, turned you to Christ, caused you to want to be saved by Jesus, and, and you knew your sins ruined you. But now the unseen God lives in you. You're God's temple. You're, God's Spirit dwells in you. God's temple is holy, or literally being made holy, being sanctified. But what you'll notice over and over again in the scriptures is the Spirit and the Word go together. If you compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, you'll notice something striking. Because Colossians 3.16 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the outcome of both of those things, being filled with the Spirit and basically filled with the Word of God, is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That the Holy God uses the Holy Word by the, by the Holy Spirit to, to create holy people. So be filled, two commands. Don't get drunk with wine. Don't do that. And then be filled with the Spirit. And the focus is on the last command. Now, think about drunkenness. 
Some of you might have gotten drunk last night. Some of you have a hangover right now. Well, back in that day, drunkenness was the mark of a blind and foolish man. Actually, you probably didn't get drunk last night. You'd be coming to third service. But drunkenness in that day, don't tell on me. They, they were seen as someone blind and foolish and a slave to the material world. Unable to control themselves led them to commit many sins. Then and now, people drink too much. You know what happens? Oh, I can handle it. And they draw a line where they shouldn't draw a line. Oh, I can do this much. And they're still controlled by it. So that might be if you drink, um, you might be drawing a line too easy on yourself, okay? And what happens is then you start being controlled by the substance, not by the Spirit of God. Now, back then, they didn't know when to stop. They went into excess and senselessness, and there are people who are that way. Those who worship Dionysus, the Greek god of wine, in that day in Ephesus, felt that they were indwelt and empowered and controlled by that false god. And they thought that they were given special powers and abilities when they were drunk. But for the Christian, it's far different. The indwelling spirit of God is the one who should continually control and dominate your life and your choices. This is calling for a habitual, continual action. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Literally, you have the Holy Spirit. Now be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Allow yourself to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And how do you do it? Through scriptural intake that you can't overdo. You can overdo alcohol. You can't overdo the Bible. You can underdo living of it, but you can't overdo intake. Psalm 1 talks about continually meditating, thinking on scripture. You're not to be controlled by a substance like alcohol where you lose your sharp reasoning faculties. And, and by the way, this is not getting drunk in the Spirit and the ridiculousness that people uh, you know, do all these weird things and say that the Spirit is having them do it. No. If you're filled with the Spirit, and, and, and you, you, you're filled with what the Spirit gives, the Word of God, you'll be clear-headed, you'll be sober-minded, you'll be serious about what the Word of God says, and you'll trust God to do the work. You know, in Peter, in 1 Peter, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting God as saying, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It's God saying, I'm going to make you holy. You don't need to make yourself holy. Or be filled with the Spirit is God filling you, not you going to like the filling station of the Holy Spirit and, and getting a fill up. No, it's where you do what God empowers, filled with the Word of God that the Spirit has inspired, and you pray and you serve, and then God does the work that only He can do. The proof that you have the Holy Spirit is you want to be like Jesus. You know you've rebelled, you know you've sinned against God, and you know even as a Christian, you, you do that as well. And then, but then you confess and repent, and you look back and you go, wow, there's been some movement, there's been some growth. I, I'm, the Spirit is working in me to guide me and transform me. Do not sin unrepentant and grieve the Holy Spirit. No, be filled with or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Third, and this is another, this is another thing we're to do, sing songs of the Spirit. Filled with the word of God that the spirit gives. What's the overflow? Look at verse 19, Ephesians 5, 19. 
addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. The idea here is that you would, the outflow of being filled with the Spirit by the Word is songs of praise. Those are psalms from the Bible. Those are sacred songs that are composed with a purpose to praise God. They have Christ-centered content in them. Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Psalm 95 says, come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Verse 7 of Psalm 95, let us worship and bow down. He is our God, we are his people. The very next words, very next words. Today if you hear his voice. It's referring to the word of God that he spoke, that he had written down. That's not new revelation. It's the living and abiding word of God. You want to worship him. So, so you talk about the spirit more than you talk about Satan. And you run to the scriptures more than you run into selfish pursuits. Don't grieve the spirit. Be controlled by the spirit. Sing songs of the spirit. Those are all based on the word of God. They're all related. So when you get to the fourth thing, it makes perfect sense. And it's in chapter 6, verse 17. Use the sword of the spirit. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that you do spiritual battle with the forces of evil, like Jesus did with the word when tempted. That you counterattack with the living and abiding word of God. And there were different words for sword in those days. One was romphi, which is a broad sword, huge sword. But the one used here is machaira. It's a small, short dagger that soldiers would use in hand-to-hand combat. See, the one who keeps God's commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. God's word is spoken of as word, as voice, as hammer, as other things, but also here, sword. When you look at, we'll get into it, you know, late, another time, but when we look at the, 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 um, the armor of God, and this is the one, the offensive weapon that you take up, uh, people have noticed, well, what do you, how do you protect your back? And in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan says it's because Christian has no armor for his back, the best option was to stand his ground. You stand your ground with the word of God. But see, the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit. They're, the unbeliever thinks it's foolish. It's like Jude 19, sensual persons who cause divisions. They do not have the spirit. They are devoid of the spirit. Now, from the beginning, in the garden, the devil raised doubt and suspicion about the word of God. It's happening today. But dear believer, you can trust it and you need it. You wouldn't play tennis without a racket, would you? You wouldn't play basketball without a ball, would you? You wouldn't drive a nail in without a hammer, would you? You wouldn't cut wood without a saw, would you? Well, don't go to battle without your sword. No, you need to read it, meditate on it, pray it, proclaim it. Don't grieve the Spirit. Be filled and controlled and, and sing songs of the Spirit and use the sword of the Spirit. And fifth, pray in the Spirit. Chapter 6, verse 18, the very next verse. And, and you, what you'll see over and over again is Scripture and prayer always 
combining where God speaks through the word. We speak to him in prayer. It says in verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This verse basically says pray four different times. All in that small area of real estate, biblically there. And by the way, this is not speaking in tongues. Praying in the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's not babbling into the air. There, by the way, there's more scriptural warnings about tongues than teaching about tongues. But that's for another day. What, what this is about is mindfully and thoughtfully pouring your heart out to God. The Spirit, as Romans 8 tells us, helps us in our weakness, that we do not know how to pray as we ought, and the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, makes up for our lack. No impersonal force or power can do that. God who knows us perfectly, God who knows us completely does that. And we are told to pray at all times, bringing your needs before God, the one who can meet your needs. Pray at every opportunity. Don't think you're asking too much. Don't fear of asking too often. Literally rob yourself of sleep if you have to. Keep alert here means stay awake. Have a sleepless night. Have insomnia. Be watchful. Be vigilant with perseverance, with constant attention. Like you're intently waiting on God. It's it's like being very diligent at your work. Except here your work is prayer. What many Christians say, well, I don't really need to do that. Ephesians shows us these seven things that the one spirit does and the God-inspired responses that are called for in the Christian's life. What does the spirit do? Blesses, seals, gives wisdom, access, builds us up, reveals the truth, gives us power. And the spirit of God inspires you to please him, not yourself. Don't grieve him. Yield to his control. Sing spiritual songs. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Let me say a couple things to a few people. Not, uh, you know, Reuben, you're good. But a few groups. Uh, Maybe today you find yourself off track or wayward or angry. What changes things for me when I'm not walking by the Spirit, but I'm walking by the flesh? It's when I realize what I'm doing and I remember the gospel and I repent of my sin that hey I'm off track I gotta remember the gospel I gotta turn from sin to Christ just this week I was having a very frustrating time putting in a sink faucet it wasn't going as I had hoped I had even said to someone in my family this is going to take me two hours it took me longer you're all judging me don't worry about it Um, all I can tell you is I was angry at the world and every time something came my way or across my phone screen or someone called me or whatever everything in that moment was filtered by that lens just like everything you know in your life is usually getting filtered by whatever is messing you up the most internally but i realized what was going on i i I actively remembered the gospel remembered jesus and i repented of my foul mood and things changed but see an unbeliever can't do that unbeliever just bouncing around like a ball from one quick fix to another But the believing soul, it's like a child that's weaned, just rests in the Lord. What if you're deceived? What if you're caught up in signs and wonders hoopla and always seeking a new emotional high? What if you're addicted to feelings and emotions? 
Well, the normative Christian life empowered by the Spirit of God looks like wise decisions, looks like being a blessing, looks like receiving what God intends, looks like acknowledging Him, Him who holds all things together by the word of His power, Him who works everything after the counsel of His will. See, the Spirit at work looks more ordinary and normal than you think, and it cannot be done in the flesh. Maybe you're a new believer today. Maybe you're confused. Maybe everything I said today, you're like, I don't understand anything you just said. Uh, let's say you're a brand new believer in Christ. What, what should you do about all of this? Well, express your love for Jesus as often as you can in your heart and out loud and to others and express your praise and thanksgiving to him and confess your sins to him and make your requests known in prayer and read the word and study the word and do it alone and with family and friends as often as you can. Like, find whatever you can do to obediently uh, do what is good, right, and true as often as you can. Um, for those of you, one last thing, for those of you who think that anything goes when it comes to the Spirit of God, or you go on the other end of the spectrum, you're like, everything's the same, and it's kind of boring and bland. The Spirit creates unity in the one body, not uniformity. It's a beautifully diverse array of togetherness working in the same direction for the same goal of glorifying God because the one spirit indwells the one body but we're not like stormtroopers okay we're not clones we're not looking exactly the same but we're led by the same spirit here's what you need to know the Holy Spirit always does the same work now some of you woke up okay this is how we can have the essential unity in the church because the Holy Spirit always does the same work now, different manifestations of his work, but all essentially one. Like, for example, no two snowflakes are exactly the same. No two flowers are exactly the same, but they're in the same family, belong to the same category. So we're not talking about assembly line mass production here. The work of the Holy Spirit, though, is always the same work, but we are not clones. The Spirit of God does God's work in us, always the same work, living work, vital work, not identical in details, but the Spirit saves and sanctifies as He wills. Now, it's not the same storyline every time, but it's the same blood of Christ. It's the same cross work of Christ. It's the same gospel. The outworking might be different, but the goal is the same, the glory of God. Now, here's a question. If the Holy Spirit indwells the church and manifest God's presence through us, does our devotion unlock that work? Or does the work of the Spirit prompt our devotion? Do my deeds of devotion cause the Spirit to work, or do I do deeds of devotion because the Spirit is at work? Now, you might think that's like a chicken and egg kind of question. Where does one start and the other begin? I think it's a very crucial question to ask because there's a lot of teaching about the Holy Spirit that you, you must make it happen, that you claiming you must initiate it. And don't we love to stylize and customize and personalize everything for us? People will say, you, you have to make God do things as you name it and claim it and do whatever. You must do certain things for the Spirit to work. And I think what we saw today should straighten that out. Here it is. The seven actions of the Spirit that Ephesians shows and our five responses seem to indicate that the Spirit initiates. How so? Well, the those, those actions of the Holy Spirit are in 
the first three chapters, which is telling us what God has done, and the last three chapters tell us how we should respond. And, and again, we're not clones, we're not stormtroopers, we're not Fred Flintstone working in our own power. But essentially, this is what this verse is telling us. It's one phrase even. Here's what Ephesians 4.4 4 is telling us. The one spirit saves and sanctifies you, so get over yourself. Work together in one unified body and surrender yourself to the spirit's work. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we could tur- turn from our way to you who leads us and we can submit to you and be devoted to prayer and the word and one another and we could live by the spirit and not carry out the desires of the flesh and we could make moment by moment choices to say no to sin and yes to Christ. I pray, Lord, that the, your word would dwell in us richly, that your peace would even act as referee in our own hearts such that we would continue in your way and not be deceived, not, not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. But thank you, Lord, that your one spirit lives in and unifies your one body. And so may, may your spirit who indwells us fill us, use us for your glory, and keep pointing us to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand with us. And my heart will sing. 
Before we go, a couple announcements. Uh, if you want information about Grace Sunday card or sign up for the Tuesday, Friday emails through the QR code. Uh, we're always having new members we're welcoming. Our most recent are Alex and Michelle Rosu, so please welcome them. Uh, lots of missions opportunities, 15 different summer opportunities. Homes of Hope February team going the 16th to the 18th are still uh, needing a considerable, considerable amount to raise, so please consider donating. Uh, continue to pray for Bethany and Ashley in South Africa. As they work at the baby home. Bethany's coming home soon. And Fieldhouse Project is uh, in process. So to close, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 16 and 17. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Lord, send us now um, by your grace, for your glory, uh, in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the